Well, I get the privilege this morning of introducing our speaker, Molly Velt. Uh, Molly and I met Molly and her family in 2008 when I moved to Central Asia um, to help out at a little homeschooling cooperative for our international workers there. Um, her husband, Matt, who's with her today, um, was kind of like my boss. And uh, we had a good time. I got to teach in a closet my first year there. Um, but the Velt family, I did. I like legit closet. Um, <laughs> and the Velt family quickly became my second family. They were my family in my home away from home. Um, they welcomed me in. Um, their boys at the time were about the same age as my youngest brother. And so I just really felt at home with and um, really blessed to be kind of part of their extended family whether they really wanted me or not. But I spent a lot of time at their house for meals and sleeping on their floor and just really got to know them and, and their heart for the people of the world and, um, and their, a little bit of their story. And it, it was during the time that Molly got introduced to storytelling and just kind of fell in love with that aspect of ministry as well. And so she's been doing that since, since that time. Um, I'm not going to tell all of her story. I'll let her do that. But uh, this spring, I had been talking with Christian, and, and we were just talking about different things. And I said, had mentioned about Molly and her storytelling. He's like, well, why don't we have her come and do that? And so I thought about it and talked to Bruce about it, and, uh, and we made it happen. And I hope that those of you who were able to come this weekend and um, participate in that um, were blessed by it. And, and learned a few things, and I hope that we can share it with the rest of you who weren't able to be here. Um, but during that time, I also asked Molly if she would um, stay for today and share her story, because their family's story is one that is just a reflection to me of the gospel, how God can take something that looks so hopeless and so sad and, and broken, and he can make it into something absolutely gorgeous and beautiful in his time. So I'm going to ask Molly to come up, and I'm going to pray for her and, um, and let her share what she has for us this morning. Yeah. God, I thank you so much. Um, I thank you for the Velt family and, and the role that they have played in my life and the life of who knows how many thousands of people around the world. Um, Thank you that you have, have blessed them with this story, while at times it may not seem like a blessing. Um, God, you really have done wonderful things in their lives, and I just pray for Molly now as she shares that story with us, that, um, God, you would speak to each of our hearts. There's going to be a different part that each of us is going to resonate with, um, but I pray that each person would hear from you today um, and that they would walk away with something new in their life because of what they've heard today. Thank you so much for the honor and the blessing and the privilege that we have to have them with us today. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.
hope, but it also contains a lot of pain and loss and grief. And since I'm visiting you, I don't know this congregation, and I don't know the struggles that some of you are facing. It's possible that, depending on where you are in your life journey, it may be too hard or overwhelming to hear parts of my story. So if that's the case and you need to step out, it's okay if you need to, all right? I want you to feel comfortable doing that if that's necessary. But um, so those of you that came to my training this past week and you know that I have a passion for Bible storytelling, um, when we lived in Thailand many years ago, I had the opportunity to, to do what I'm doing for you, which is share my personal story. And during, during Spiritual Emphasis Week at my husband's school, um, I wanted it to reflect my passion for storytelling. And so this is what emerged from that desire. So I want to pause for a minute, and I want to invite you to enter in to a true story from the life of Christ. We told it this weekend in our training, so for some of you this will be repetitive, but that's okay because we can step into this story a lot. Um, So I want you to use your imagination and pretend that you're by the Sea of Galilee. Um, You're with Jesus among his disciples. You hear him say, oh, it's evening time, so maybe the sun's setting. And you can um, see fishermen bringing their nets in, cleaning their nets for the day. Um, Are there seagulls flying overhead? What do you see? Can you feel the breeze of the Sea of Galilee? And then you hear Jesus say to his disciples, let's go to the other side of the lake. So we get Jesus into the boat, just as he is. He was tired that day. It was the end of a long day. And we leave the crowd behind. There's other boats out there, too. And you set out. So there's a windstorm that comes down on the lake. It's so fierce that water is coming into the boat, and the boat is quickly filling, and the disciples, we are in danger. Jesus, he's in the back of the boat on the cushion, sound asleep. We go to him and we wake him and we say, Master, Master, don't you care that we're going to drown? Jesus got up. He rebuked the wind. He said to the waves, Peace be still. The wind stopped. Everything was calm. Why? Why are you so afraid? Jesus asked his disciples. Have you still no faith? We were afraid. We were all so amazed. And we said to each other, who is this man? He commands the winds and the water, and they obey him. I'm grateful to have grown up in a Christian home, and as a young child, 
I remember being afraid of dying. When I was seven, my second grade teacher, she was a believer, she shared some really good news with me over lunch one day. She told me how God loved me. We also talked about my sin problem and how God in his love for me had sent Jesus to take the punishment for my sin by dying on the cross. Jesus rose back to life, she said. He's alive. He's able to forgive you and make your heart ready for heaven. And that was great news for a little girl that was afraid of dying. With simple, childlike faith, I turned my heart toward Jesus as my Savior. I stepped down into the boat, so to speak, and began sailing with him across the lake. I grew up going to Sunday school, learning songs about Jesus, Bible stories like the one that we just imagined together. I heard the same stories over and over. They started to all sound the same. They didn't speak to me personally, and in a way that I wouldn't have been able to articulate at the time, my faith became mundane. My spiritual life was not about sailing life's waters with Jesus, but more about intellectually understanding the Bible and trying to fit the Christian cultural norms of the day, which, frankly, wasn't that hard for me. I'm a rule follower by nature, a rule abider, the hall monitor. I was the hall monitor. So as I grew into high school, I socialized with my church friends. I stayed out of trouble, but I could hardly motivate myself to pray. And that was troubling for me. I ended up at a Christian college where I had the privilege of hearing through chapel messages, professors and fellow students, faith stories about and from people from all around the world. I was especially inspired by stories that had an international component. I began to see God real through other people's faith stories. I graduated from Wheaton College with a desire to experience international ministry to sail in the Jesus boat in some sort of cross-cultural setting. So I met that guy over there at Wheaton. He had a similar desire as me, though his dream was more specific. He was studying to be a high school history teacher, and he aspired to teach children of missionaries in a cross-cultural setting. So we graduated, we got married, and with plans to sail the high seas to the school and culture of God's leading, we would start our family first, and then we would head out. Skylar, our first son, was born in the fall of 1985, about six months into his beautiful little life. He started having some health issues. At nine months, he was in the hospital to have some tests run to find out why he wasn't gaining weight properly. Instead of missionary candidate school that summer, we went to the Mayo Clinic. When he was 13 months old, he was hospitalized for an MRI. A lesion was found on his brain stem. The storm clouds began to brew. The dream of overseas work was starting to be obscured by the haze of raising a potentially very sick child. We continued tests and hospitalizations to pinpoint a diagnosis. Meanwhile, our daughter Hannah was born. And soon after we found out we were pregnant again, 
Schuyler was officially diagnosed. He had a life-threatening degenerative neurological disease called Lee's syndrome. This was a genetic disorder. Matt and I carry the recessive trait, and with each pregnancy, there was a one in four chance of having a child impacted by the disease. Schuyler's life expectancy was three to five years. Cameron was born in February of 1989, and before he was a year old, he was also diagnosed with the same disease. You don't have to be too imaginative to appreciate the devastation of this news, Cameron and Schuyler's diagnoses in the Shattered Dreams. However, I would never have been able to imagine ahead of time what it would be like to follow the progression of this disease in our two boys while taking care of a very healthy and active daughter. The boys both progressed to certain levels of development, first sitting, crawling, and then nearly walking. Then little by little, they began to agonizingly lose these milestones, which sometimes involved lengthy hospital stays. In the end, they went blind, they were confined to wheelchairs and fed through tubes that went straight to their stomachs. Our older son had a tracheotomy, a hole surgically placed in his throat that allowed him to breathe. They couldn't even hold up their heads. The storm raged. Water was filling our boat. Was Jesus able to rescue us? Would he calm the storm? Could we trust him in these threatening waters? Cameron lived for three and a half years. Skylar lived for almost nine. The journey was long. The waters were rough, really exhausting physically. A trip to the grocery store meant pulling a cart with a sick baby in an infant seat, a busy toddler in the large basket while pushing a wheelchair in front. I avoided this scenario. For a road trip from our home in Texas to visit relatives in Michigan, our car became a traveling hospital with medicines, feeding and suction equipment, and two wheelchairs. At one point, we had three in diapers at the same time. You might imagine that on a teacher's salary, our finances were strained as well. These challenges only exacerbated the deeper sources of our pain, the emotional strain. Our dreams for our boys were not just sat shattered. We lost the ability to dream for them at all. Being raised in a safe, secure Christian home, these were the first real tests of my faith. Would we ever experience joy or happiness again in our lives? I wondered, or would we drown in despair? Was God able to keep us afloat? Well, he was able, and he did. I know now that he is enough, that he provides as he promises, because the Lord is my shepherd, the psalmist tells us. I have everything I need. But of course, there was no one defining moment of rescue or experience that settled these questions for me. In a faith-deepening process over time, we began to see how real God was, and how skillfully he was able to sustain and provide us for us at every point of need in these rough waters. One of the most significant ways that God made his presence palpable to us was through the love and care of our faith community. They provided meals regularly, respite care for our boys, babysitting for our daughter, countless prayers, notes, and words of encouragement. 
There were unexpected yet timely financial gifts. I mentioned the car that would take us to Michigan each summer. One night before going to bed, we got a phone call from a man related to a fellow church member. He had heard about our situation, and he felt compelled to help. He gave us $1,500 every month for 10 months so that we could purchase a van for our family. The van helped simplify all our traveling, enabling us to transport our three children, their two wheelchairs, and their medical equipment. It was not one gift or clarifying word of encouragement. It was one after another after another. Each one brought a divine hug and a faith-strengthening reminder that God was there. Especially in their passing, our faith community shared our pain and cried with us. I grew up in the church, as I said, but it wasn't until then that I understood how the body of Christ ministers God's help and healing presence. So Jesus chose not to calm the storm or steer us to quiet, quiet waters, yet he invited a whole community of believers to climb in the boat with us. And through their love, we felt God's presence and arms of rescue. As we journeyed through the pain of watching our children's bodies degenerate and die, the irony of 2 Corinthians 4.16 became truth and reality for me. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Skylar and Cameron were a visual picture of that outward wasting away. And yet, we felt God's inward renewal of our faith, strengthened not because we saw him calm the storm, but because we felt his presence so profoundly while in the storm. Indeed, God was present and good. His presence and goodness revealed through his word and his people were able, day by day, little by little, to dispel the fear and strengthen us from within. I still, to this day, have a hard time giving words to that inward renewing. I knew it, though. I felt it. And I know it has to do with growing in my awareness of his presence in my life. He hadn't left us alone in that boat. He was there through all of it. Gone were the days of mundane faith. In their passing as well, I cannot underemphasize the comfort that the promise of eternal life brought of, with God brought to us. When Cameron was dying, in our concerned attempts to help prepare Hannah, who was five at the time, we talked about Cameron's soon-to-be new home, heaven. Heaven, she asked. I've never been there. I've been to Michigan, but I've never been to heaven. When Hannah was seven years old, her older brother died. She herself read for our grieving community at Schuyler's memorial service the same words that Jesus shared with his anxious disciples as he was preparing them for his departure. Don't let your hearts be troubled or upset. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my father's home. I'm going to prepare a place for you. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. I had learned those words as a young child. Now this promise in scripture about life with God, even after physical death, is not just pretty words on the pages of a very old book. They were life-giving. They sustain us and bring us hope to this day. 
With Skylar and Cameron's passing and the grief that in time subsided, the storm was still for a while, and we began to tread new waters in the Jesus boat. The Lord led us to grow our family through adoption. This, too, had the potential to be a frightening journey, the waters of the future uncertain. We needed a lot of confirmation that he was steering the boat. He spoke and even used a dream. Through a church connection, we signed up with an agency that was placing the many orphaned Chinese daughters with waiting families. We felt like God was wanting to give us a child from China. And then my husband had a dream that he was on a train heading toward China to pick up our Chinese daughter. But the train ended up in India. And there was, and there was a son waiting for us. A month later, imagine our surprise when our adoption agency called us to say that they had three little Indian boys needing families. They had been able to place two of them with those in their India program, but since we hadn't specified a daughter, would we be interested in a boy from India? Eight months later, we were Calcutta-bound to receive our Indian prince. Before I pass this slide on, I just want you to see that his Indian name was Tufan, And if you can imagine what that means, it's related to the word typhoon. It means storm in in the native language. And uh, and then one of his caregivers wrote a prayer to us saying, may you be a storm of love for your family. So um, this is our Indian prince, Tristan. He was a child hand-selected by God and confirmed with, of all things, a dream. Less than a year later, we traveled to China. The week before we made the trip to China, we were attending missionary candidate school in Minnesota. There just happened to be a Chinese national also attending who just happened to be from Tianjin, the city where Cal lived. When we showed her Cal's picture, she exclaimed, I know that boy. I volunteer in his orphanage. I just said goodbye to him. I told him I wouldn't be seeing him again because he would be going to his forever family. Tianjin was a city with a population of over 5 million people. This is no coincidence, a God incidence. With confidence, we stepped forward in faith to receive this three-and-a-half-year-old son. Within a year's time, our generous God had filled our near-empty arms with two awesome boys that had his fingerprints all over them. Psalm 30:11 says, "You have turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You have taken away my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy, that I might sing praises to you and not be silent. O oh Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever." Finally, After 17 years of marriage, a total of five children, two of them already in eternity, the other three present with us in a story to tell of God's faithfulness, we embarked on a long-awaited cross-cultural journey. We moved to Central Asia, working with a Muslim people group. Matt was teaching the children of our team in a tiny school in Tashkent with that awesome gal over there. I was learning the language to work with the church planters, and we were finally living out our dream that we had shared together since before we got married. Four months into our time there, we were awakened by a mild earthquake. 
but the news at the health clinic that day rocked my world even more. I was shocked to find that I was pregnant. After the 17-year wait for the mission field, four months into our first term, I was already back in the U.S. to finish out a high-risk pregnancy. Can you see Mary Grace in that picture? She's way back being held by Tristan. Against the odds, Mary Grace arrived safe and sound. Her doctor said at her birth, God has smiled on us today. We still had one more hurdle to clear. Within three weeks, the diagnosis was certain. I was standing in the public library with my four children when the doctor called with the devastating news. Mrs. Felt, he spoke slowly and somberly. This is the phone call I didn't want to make. It was unthinkable, but true. The reality sunk deep like an anchor. Mary Grace had the same disease that had taken the lives of her biological brothers. I couldn't restrain my tears as I gathered my children from the various corners of the library. I cried all the way home that day and for many weeks to follow. My tears could not be restrained. When Mary Grace was three months old, we did return to Central Asia. We knew that we had a window of time before this late-onset degenerative disease would present. Our team was calling us back, and we had a flickering hope that perhaps God would do something different and new and miraculous in her precious life. But when she was nine months old, we were on an emergency medical evacuation plane. She was having trouble breathing, we left so quickly that we didn't get to say goodbye. Our dreams for missionary work were put on hold indefinitely again. But that disappointment didn't compare to the dread of watching another child die. The storm raging around me penetrated my heart. I was drowning in my own fears and crushing disappointment over yet another shattered dream. How could God let this happen again? Genetically speaking, this was a recessive trait. Even genetics was in our favor. But God, was he against me? Lord, don't you care that I'm going to drown? The Jesus that could calm the wind and waves with one word could certainly breathe healing power over my daughter. Why was he holding back? Even after earnest, faith-filled prayers for healing, why was he saying no? Why was he willing, seemingly eager and intentional in allowing us to suffer again. In my despair, the enemy began his accusations. Clearly, God doesn't love you. Why would he? He's punishing you. A form of shame set in, and these were dark days for me and my faith. I'm slightly more savvy today of the strategies of our enemy, the devil, whom Paul tells us is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It turns out his favorite prey are the vulnerable, the young, the already wounded. Spiritually speaking, it would have been helpful for me to identify him as the source of these lies. However, at the time, I thought that God was my enemy, or that I was his, or both. And a wrestling match of sorts ensued. I'm not a big fan of the sport of wrestling, even when it's your husband. Uh, in high school. <laughs> it's a bit disgusting to me to watch full-bodied grown men sweat skin to skin in those scanty singlet suits. But, however, 
It illustrates a point. When you wrestle, you are close. And I found that in my wrestling with God, he was close. My honest cries with him were actually an invitation for more intimacy in my relationship with him. And in his lavish love for me, the very thing that I was doubting, he showed me through different means that he had not abandoned me. In fact, he was right there in the boat with me, not sleeping, fully awake and feeling every toss, every seasick-inducing wave of spiritual nausea. The assurances of his love and presence continue and bring healing to residual traumatic memories. Just a few years ago, on one of my slow jogs through our neighborhood in Thailand, I was conversing with Jesus, and I was bold enough to ask him where he was on that unforgettable day in the library when I received the horrible news that Mary Grace was sick. Without closing my eyes, I was jogging after all, the Lord gave me a profound picture that I have not forgotten. I could see Jesus sitting at one of the library tables. He was crying. As I played out that memory and loaded my children in the car and drove home through my tears, Jesus followed. He sat in the back seat with my children. He continued to share my shocking pain with his tears. This Jesus with whom I had climbed into the boat as a seven-year-old was the same Jesus that cried with Mary and Martha when their beloved brother died a premature death, even though he knew he was getting ready to raise him from the dead. And in my memory, Jesus was now crying with me. Had he felt my shame as well? When I look at his story well recorded for us, I see his heart cries as he hung ashamed and naked on the cross. He borrowed words penned by his human ancestor, King David. The two of them understood well the sense of abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is it true? Had Jesus felt forsaken by his father? I was helped in knowing the one in the boat with me had experienced feelings of abandonment and shame. And then, over the span of her life, I recognized and valued Mary Grace as another one of God's gifts of love to me. God was not trying to punish me. He had indeed smiled on us when she was born, and not just us. She was very endeared to her little community, and those that welcomed her into their life received a blessing. When she came into a room, she could brighten everyone's heart. She was one of the most popular girls at school. Everyone wanted to be Mary Grace's friend and be the one to push her in her wheelchair or hold her hand. During the day, her classroom teacher was always interrupted with friends or other teachers or their principal who wanted to stop and say hello to Mary Grace. Even our dog wanted to be her friend. He would sit underneath her wheelchair, keeping watch, keeping her company, and snapping at Tristan if he got too close. My brother-in-law wrote some very significant words to us in a letter referring to our special children. It's not the length of life that matters, he wrote, nor even the quality of life but how clearly that life brings glory to God. Mary Grace was not a broken or damaged gift given as a punishment. God had reached deep down in his treasure chest and carefully prepared this gem for us so that when you held her up to the light, she indeed reflected the glory of God. 
the joy and blessing of Mary Grace's life added to our pain when it was time to say goodbye. We put her to bed one evening, and the next morning she woke up in eternity. The loss was sudden and huge. I cried until I thought I could cry no more, and then there were more tears. A poignant analogy from an author acquainted with grief compared loss to the setting sun. One can choose to chase after the sun, that is to say, run from the pain or numb it, or one can turn back into the darkness, allow the suffering to transform the sufferer, and wait for the sunrise. The darkness turned into a quiet blanket of God's love for me, the tears a God-given relief valve for my pain. Now the storm that so threatened to destroy my peace stirred up waves of love from God that were overwhelming at times. Words to this hymn give poetry to this truth. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love leading onward, leading homeward to my glorious rest above. Yes, indeed, God loves me. And my conviction that he loves me has become more certain through loss. It will be 18 years this April that we said goodbye to Mary Grace. Her passing closed a chapter on, her lo- on our lives. But once again, with new opportunities opened, there were more seas to sail, if you will. With her passing and graduating our older daughter from high school, we could return to Central Asia. At the time, however, there was a mass deportation of missionaries leaving Uzbekistan due to government cancellation of visas. Our visa was denied. With support raised, bags packed, house rented out, an international school for missionary children in Chiang Mai, Thailand came on the radar. We went with enthusiasm grateful that we could serve until the door was open again into Uzbekistan. We arrived in Thailand in January of 2007, immediately impressed and shocked with the large numbers of orphaned children. It had been three years since Mary Grace died, but a thought filtered in. We lost two boys, and, gave, and God gave us boys from China and India. I wonder if there's a little girl for us somewhere here in Thailand. A few weeks later, we met a very special girl at a restaurant with her foster mom. Sassy pulled on my heartstrings. The following Sunday, I saw her at our church. Each Sunday then, I maneuvered our family to sit behind Sassy, where I could coax a smile. Was God wanting to give her to us? Feeling my age, I argued with God a bit, and then I purposed not to tell Matt about my feelings. I would have clarity if the Lord spoke directly to him. Our daughter Hannah was planning on visiting us in Thailand that summer. In a Skype call, she told me she was having a reoccurring dream about a Thai baby. What does she look like? I asked, because I've learned to pay attention to dreams. Hannah arrived on a Sunday, and when we went to church, I whisked her over to meet Sassy. At that point, Matt whispered in Hannah's ear, You're about to meet the girl we're going to adopt. Hannah met Sassy and then without hesitation said, You know, Mom, when you all get too old, I'll help you take care of her. With clarity, we moved forward a somewhat tricky international adoption.
And there she is. She's with us today. <laughs> Sassy is a unique and special gift, just as Skylar, Hannah, Cameron, Cal, Tristan, and Mary Grace have been. She was orphaned soon after her birth. She received a horrific brain infection in utero from her birth mom, who died before Sassy was two weeks old. Her birth father was also sick and relinquished parental rights. She fought for her life in the hospital. The infection left her brain oxygen-deprived in her body with cerebral palsy. The doctor said that Sassy wouldn't live to be 10 years old, would never smile or do anything. Well, Sassy turned 18 last April, graduated from high school, and with assistance and a gate trainer, walked across the graduation stage to receive her diploma. She also rides her adaptive bike. She uses sign language or a communication device to speak. She got the Super Smile Award in kindergarten and has won many hearts through her infectious smile. I'll be honest, though, these waters challenge us. Some days we feel like we're straining at the oars trying to move forward. She's completely dependent. Development is delayed and progress is slow. How is it, though, that once again the challenges of life, like parenting a child with special needs, do more to strengthen our faith than weaken it? Sometimes I imagine listening in on Jesus, engaging his disciples, when they were arguing about who among them was the greatest. Mark tells us that Jesus took a little child and had him stand among them. And then as Jesus took the child into his arms, he said to his disciples, whoever welcomes one of these little ones in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me does not just welcome me, but also the one who sent me. It was another special revelation for me one day when I made the connection that Sassy's arrival into our home had in a mysterious way brought more of God's presence into my life. God promises his presence through these little ones. Speaking of little ones, a few years back, the Lord grafted into the velt tree a beloved son-in-law, Doug. You can see him in the middle there. And a few months ago, our daughter Hannah birthed our first grandchild. Iris Catherine was born healthy and weighing in at seven pounds, nine ounces. She's yet another sacred gift and a shining image bearer of her creator. Hannah, um, sorry, Hannah and Iris just spent a week with us uh, earlier in October, and my heart is overflowing with gratitude. Oh, that's one of the snapshots we took while she was there when my husband served us up a big plate of Iris Catherine. What a joy. So that is my story, and you might be tempted to think that after all we've been through, with God demonstrating a long and sustained record of his faithfulness to us, that now I sail through life storms completely at peace and without fear. No. Honestly, after all we've been through, a most natural and immediate response to trials and disappointments is often overreaction and anger and angst and self-talk and attempts to calm the storm with my own powerless hands. The truth is, daily I need to hear his probing question, Molly, my daughter, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? In what are you putting your trust 
The good news is that he and I are on a journey together, and with each impulse to fear, when the storm clouds start to gather, I can practice studying his sleeping face to discover what genuine trust looks like. I can receive each gentle, loving, and probing question as an invitation to know him more intimately and trust him more completely. I find it intriguing that it was Jesus who initiated the call to sail to the other side of the lake. Jesus was taking his disciples into Gentile territory. While on the other side of the lake, he would free a demonized man, a man whose testimony would initiate kingdom work in that pagan land. Why did Jesus suggest crossing the lake and not going around it? Granted, it would take longer to walk around, but at least they would not be in harm's way of a life-threatening storm. Did Jesus know the storm was coming? At the very least, his father, our father, knew, and Jesus fully cooperated and surrendered himself to his father's will. This is curious and profound. God's path was not the safe path, but the path that brought his followers more intimate experience and connection with him, the path that built their trust in him. And that, my brothers and sisters, makes the ride not just endurable, but vital for a sustaining, rewarding life with God, the life which he is most eager to give us. So settle into the boat, enjoy the ride with him through the calm and the storm. That's it. Ooh. Thank you, Molly, for sharing that. I know there were a lot of vulnerable moments in there and If you don't feel blessed after listening to her story, you might need to go back and watch it again. God is good. Sometimes we have to realize what others have gone through to realize just how blessed we are. I know as we shared the storytelling training, one of the things that hit me the most as we talked through the story was just that thought that Jesus is right there. And he, when the disciples try to wake him, you notice through the story, he doesn't match the disciples' energy. He doesn't get up. It doesn't say Jesus leapt up and out of fear commanded the waves. He's just calm. And I think we can learn a lot from matching the energy of Jesus in the storm, finding what is his heart, where's he at. He's not freaking out, so maybe we don't need to freak out too. But there's a lot in that story, um, and I trust that the Lord has spoken to some of us specifically and uniquely in that. I know some of us deal with anxiety. Some of us deal with fear. That story deals with a lot of different things. Think about how, how much did the disciples try to fix it before they woke Jesus up? How much effort did they put in before they finally turned to Jesus? There's a lot there, and I encourage you to process that. We're going to dismiss now, but I want you to take some time if you want to come up and meet Molly and just thank her for her time here. Um, I encourage you to do that, but even more so, 
I encourage you to put yourself in the boat and ask Jesus what he has to teach you from what you learned today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are good. Lord, to hear a story like that, God, from a different perspective, that story could be told about how unloving God is and how mean he is and how he just doesn't seem to care, but when it hits a heart that is truly submitted to you, that story is turned into a story of grace, of love, of blessing, of pain, of dark days, but also of the embrace of the Father, which can only be magnified in the deepest, darkest valley when you wrap us up and you remind us the valleys are not evidence of the lack of love, but your presence right beside us in those valleys is a testimony of your love. So Lord, I pray today we would leave encouraged, we would leave challenged, we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt we are desperately loved by the King. That the God who created things, who created the earth, the stars, everything that we see and know, that He takes time to sit in a library and weep when we hear news that brings us to our knees. Lord, I pray we would feel Your embrace today. We would know you are real beyond any semblance of a doubt. Thank you for your love, for your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.